Good morning again. You can turn to the book of 1 John if you'd like to get a little bit of a head start. That is about five or six books from the end of the Bible, if you're looking for it. 1 John. And we'll just start out in chapter one of that book in a few minutes. For the last few weeks, actually, um, if you've been with us uh, for our messages, we've been looking at 1 Peter, and at one particular verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, and we've been talking about how to share our faith with people in our lives who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit this morning, and I want to talk about a very related topic. Uh, what I want to do for the next few weeks, probably through April, is uh, to, to look at the gospel, the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ, and I, I want to look at it from a few different angles. Uh, and and there, I have a couple reasons for doing this. One is simply so that we can appreciate the beauty and the depth of what Jesus has done for us. Because in many ways, the gospel is like a beautiful diamond that you can look at and kind of stare at from different angles. And you can, you can marvel at it and admire it from, from different places. And, and each one of those angles helps us understand better what Jesus has accomplished in saving us. But the other reason that I want to do this is that the better we understand the gospel and all of its depth and all of its beauty and all of its richness, the more we internalize it, the more we understand it intuitively so that it just becomes part of us and the way we think, then the more natural it will be for us to share it with others. Um, now, we can memorize methods of sharing the gospel, and that's a very good thing to do. In fact, some of you came to our uh, Equip seminar five or six weeks ago, and we taught you two different methods, if you will, of communicating the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. And yes, we need to do that, but ultimately, I think we will be a lot more effective at communicating the gospel and more effective at seeing the gospel's relevance not just to our own lives, but to the lives of our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and other people if we come to a better and more well-rounded understanding of the gospel and what it really means. Um, many years ago, uh, many years ago now, I was pastoring in Virginia, and a man came up to me after the service, and I did not know him well. I had only met him like once or twice. In fact, he'd only visited the church a couple of times, and uh, he explained to me that he wanted to share the gospel with a friend. And he had recently befriended a Cambodian man and his family, and like most Cambodians, the family was traditionally Buddhist, but his friend had shown interest in Christianity and was very open to hearing about the message of Jesus. The problem was that, that his friend had become terminally ill, and he was very sick, uh, he was hospitalized, and he, he probably didn't have very long to live. And so I went with this man to visit his friend in the hospital, and I discovered there that his, this illness also kept him from really communicating very clearly, which on top of not having English as his first language made it very much a challenge to have any kind of a gospel conversation with this man. Well, the gentleman who had come to my church was insistent that he be the one to share the gospel with his friend. Um, he didn't want me to do it. He said, I want to do this, Pastor, because he trusts me and I've known him for a long time and I want to be the one to share, but he didn't know how to do it. And so he asked me if I could give him a way to share the gospel so that his friend would understand it. In other words, how do you express the gospel in a situation like this, meaning in the simplest possible way? And um, I thought about that for a while, because obviously there's, there's no way to introduce one of the traditional methods of evangelism in this situation. There's, he, the guy was in no shape to, to follow along with circles or diagrams or, or bridge illustrations. And even going through something like what we call the Romans Road and reading a whole bunch of, of Bible verses would have been kind of a stretch 
um, given the, the language barrier and that sort of thing. So I'm trying to think of what to do. I had recently been spending some time in this book of First John, and I had come across an idea that I thought might be helpful in this situation. So what I'm going to do for you now, here is the presentation that I gave this man, and I'm going to give you the 25-minute super extended version of it. Um, he only got the 60-second the summarized version of it. I will share that with you at the end, too. Um, now, if you, want, if you want to call this a method of sharing the gospel and you want to give it a name, you might call it God is. God is. It starts with three simple words from 1 John 1.5. God is light. God is light. Now, let's go ahead and just read 1 John 1, um, 5 and 6. 1 John 1, 5 and 6. John says, this is the message we have heard from him, meaning from Jesus, looking up into the verses before this. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Let's just stop there for now. We'll go back and look at some more in a little while. God is light. God is light. Now, that's obviously a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. But it's not a hard one to explain. I think we pretty much intuitively understand what John is saying here. This has to do with God's holiness. It has to do with his purity. It has to do with his absolute goodness and perfection. And John presses the idea home as powerfully as he possibly can by saying not just that God is light, but that in him is no darkness, no none whatsoever. Now, one question that might come to you if you're kind of a student of Scripture is you might say, well, wait, John says he got this from Jesus. He said Jesus taught this to him. So when did Jesus say this? When did Jesus say that God is light and in him is no darkness whatsoever? Well, um, Jesus said a lot of things like that, especially in the Gospel of John, but he didn't say that exactly, so it's a good question. Now, it's possible that Jesus just said this at one point, and it wasn't recorded, because John tells us in his book there were lots of things that Jesus said, lots of things that Jesus did that didn't get written down. But I think John may have something else in mind here. Because if you look at the first four verses of this book, John's talking about his experience with the other apostles and with Jesus and what they had seen and what they had heard and what their hands had touched concerning Jesus. In other words, he's talking about his experience and the other apostles' experience of Jesus. And there was one experience that definitely would have stood out to John, and that is the one that we usually call the transfiguration. That's a time when John, along with Peter and James, went up with Jesus to the top of a mountain. And when they were up there, all of a sudden, Jesus' appearance changed. And it, it, was, it became stunningly glorious. The brightness that was, that was coming out of Jesus was almost too much for these men to bear. Mark has a rather clumsy way of describing this. He says, Jesus' clothes became dazzlingly white. And then he says, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Which is kind of silly almost, but it shows us that the glory and the purity and, and the brightness of God that was coming out of Jesus at that point was of a magnitude and an intensity that was literally impossible for any of us to describe. It was that bright. There was that much light there. That's what John is getting at here in, one, in 1 John 1, 5. God is so pure. He is so perfect. He is so holy that there isn't even a microscopic speck of darkness in him. 
This isn't like, remember the old ivory soap commercials? It was what, 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure? You ever wonder what the 0.56 of a percent was in your soap? But, but that was really pure and they would brag about it, right? Well, this is not that. This is the 100%. God is perfectly good. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly wise and understanding. He is perfectly holy. No impurity. No defilement. No compromise. No, not a hint of corruption can ever enter the character of God. And not only that, but the idea of light Especially for John, yes, it carries the idea of purity and holiness, but in John it also often carries the idea of knowledge and revelation. Light reveals things. Light reveals the truth about things. That's why the cockroaches in your kitchen scurry when you turn the light on, right? Not that you have cockroaches in your kitchen, but if you did, they would scurry when you turn the light on. What John is saying here is, look, you can shine any light you want to, from any angle you want to, on God's character, and he will pass the test. You can delve as deeply as you want into God, and he will never fail to be perfect and holy and pure in every possible way. You know how there are people that you meet, and um, some people you meet, and, and you, you meet them and you, you think they're just, this is too good to be true. Right? I mean, you meet this person, you're like, no, nobody is that nice, no one's that kind, no one's that patient and godly and loving, there's got to be a catch. And then you get to know the person a little bit better. And one of two things happens, right? Either, either you find out you were right, <laughs> it was too good to be true, and a lot of this was just an act, or you find out that, yeah, you know what, yeah, this person is the real deal. They really are a great person. But you know what? They're not perfect. They're not, because you can't get into a really close relationship with another human being without becoming aware of at least some of their sins and weaknesses, right? In fact, isn't it true that the people that know us the best are the ones who have the most dirt on us, and vice versa? <laughs> Sorry, you're probably sitting next to some of these people right now. <gasps> John is telling us, John is telling us that God is different. God is different. It doesn't matter how close you get. There is nothing there to find fault with. God cannot be exposed. He is the same inside and out, which is holy and perfect and righteous through and through. Not even the slightest hint of any kind of flaw or impropriety in his character. He is utterly incorruptible. And then John starts to talk about the idea of having fellowship with God. Having a relationship with God. Now, I, I think we all see people... On a regular basis, often, you know, famous people, celebrities, politicians, other people like that, you'll see them on TV and they're wearing a cross around their neck and they're kind of throwing around God's name and they're claiming to have a relationship with God, even though the words that they say and the actions that come out of their lives make it pretty obvious that that's not the case. It's pretty easy to poke holes in those kind of testimonies, right? But what about you and me? What about you? What do you think? Could, could your life withstand the kind of scrutiny that we've been talking about. Can you say that you have that kind of integrity or are there some things in your life that if suddenly the whole world were to find out about them, you would just want to crawl under a rock immediately and scurry like one of those cockroaches? I think we all have things like that. Which leads us to the question, how can anyone like you or me ever hope to have any kind of relationship with a being like this God.
How could he ever tolerate the darkness, the sin that is in us? And that's a real question because we see throughout the Bible how God and sin just don't get along. They don't get along at all. We see this when God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. We see this when God sends a flood to destroy virtually all of humanity. We see it in Leviticus when when two sons of the high priest offer up unauthorized fire before the Lord and they get struck dead right in the act. We see it later on in Samuel when, when there's a guy by the name of Uzzah who reaches out and touches the Ark of the Covenant just to keep it from falling off a cart and the same thing happens to him. He's struck dead on the spot. And so even King David, the man who is a man after God's own heart, starts to have second thoughts about how close he can really get to this God. Because this God seems to be really, really, really holy. Just think about it. How can, how can such a God be approached? Let alone for fellowship, to use John's word in verse 6. The word fellowship, the Greek word koinonia, you may have heard of that word. It implies intimacy. Intimacy. How can we walk closely and intimately with a God like that? It also implies commonality. What in the world do we have in common with a God like that? How could we possibly have that kind of an intimate relationship? What could it be built on? Is it even possible when God is so holy that he can't even look upon our darkness? Now, you may be looking at these verses and saying, well, yeah, that's true, Pastor, but it actually says here that God can't have fellowship with us if we're walking in the darkness. Now, is walking in the darkness different than just having some darkness in our lives? Are those two different things? That's a good question. And I promise you we're going to come back to it at the end. But for now, I want to move on to the second part of our gospel presentation. Okay, that was point one. God is light. Let's go to John, 1 John chapter 4. Same book, 1 John chapter 4. And when you get there, let's start with verse 8. First John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Yes, God is light and in him is no darkness, no none whatsoever. But did you catch the other God is statement here? In 1 John 4, God is what? He's love. He's love. Now, I know this statement is often misunderstood. It's misused. It's misquoted to mean that, well, love is pretty much all there is to God. People will say that. And um, they, people will quote this to Christians when they think that we're being judgmental or exclusive, and they'll say something like, hey, didn't you know God is love? And yes, we need to keep in mind that this statement does not go both directions. Okay, yes, God is love, but love is not God. We have to realize that. But, but I think it's worth reflecting on how radical this statement is and not lose that. And, and really what it means, if you stop and think about the idea that God is light, the first one we talked about, that God is perfect and holy and, and pure, it, it is, that is probably not too surprising in some ways to us. Because we think that God, we realize that God is the person who created the universe with, with its built-in moral principles in the first place. So you might expect then that God would be morally perfect. 
But it doesn't automatically follow from that that God would be as loving as he is. Think about it. What, what do we actually mean by love? You know, we throw that word around a lot, but how do you define love? The Bible doesn't define love that explicitly, but it talks about a lot of things that love does and doesn't do. Obviously, the best place to look is in 1 Corinthians 13, um, which is, a, you know, love is patient, love is kind, et cetera, et cetera. And we often apply those verses to ourselves. It's a good thing to do in our relationships. But I want you to think in terms now of God's love with regard to those descriptors. Love does not do this or that. It would make sense that a morally perfect God would not be envious or boastful or irritable or resentful. So that, yeah, that makes sense. But what about God's, what about love's kindness? What about love's patience? What about love's willing and sacrificial unselfishness, that it, it never seeks its own good, but seeks the good of others? What about love's ability to love the unlovable? The people that all respectable and, and rational people stay away from. What about the ability to love those people about a love that, that doesn't, doesn't give up, a love that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things? What about that love? Don't you see that, that love goes much further than just meeting the moral demands of the thou shalt nots? Love is more than just an absence of darkness. It aggressively expands the light. And it uses it to search people out in order to bless them and to act for their good. And then to think that this love, the love that does this, is so characteristic of our God that it is part and parcel of his character. That it can actually be said that God is love. Now that's something to reflect on. That's something to meditate on. That's something to sing about. God is love. That's amazing. And it's maybe unexpected. But how does he express his love to us? Well, the verses tell us. Look at verse 10. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Where was God's kindness most intensely expressed? Where was God's patience most vividly highlighted? Where was God's Mercy and forgiveness most clearly displayed on the cross, on the cross of Calvary, where God the Son had to go through the unimaginable horror of being abandoned and rejected by his own Father as he hung there in agony, and where God the Father had to turn his back and fold his arms and close his ears to the cries of his only begotten son as he experienced the hellish torments of his own wrath, which came from our sin. That's what propitiation means. Why would he do this? Because he loves us. And because he is love. Jesus on the cross took all of our sin, all of our darkness upon himself so that we would not be destroyed by the glorious light of God's presence, but so that we would actually hear his voice welcoming us into that light. And hearing his voice as Ashley read from Psalm 27 this morning saying, come and be with me, come and sit with me, come and talk with me. Wow. Wow. 
How can that be possible? It's because God is love as well as light. That's what makes it possible for us to be saved. But we're not automatically saved because of that. How does it happen? How does it take place for each one of us? We need to go back to chapter 1 to find out. So go back to chapter 1. I'm going to read the next three verses. John chapter 1 verses, actually four verses, 7 through 10. He just got finished saying that if we walk in darkness, we're lying. Then verse 7 says this, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I just want you to notice just briefly three things about these verses. First of all, please do not miss the impact of the last few words of verse 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from what? All sin. All, do you remember what we said about God? That there was no darkness in him whatsoever? Remember that? This verse says that can also be true of us. Isn't that what it's saying? No sin. No impurity. Nothing to be ashamed of. No leverage for anyone to accuse us of anything. No, no fear of being exposed as a fraud. Why not? Because there's no darkness left. It's gone. I don't know how many times I've had to say to someone in my office who is beating themselves up over some sin that they thought was unforgivable because they've done it too many times or it's too horrible and this time God is, is not going to let them off the hook this time. And I always have to say, I'm sorry. What part of the cross didn't work? What part of all sin do we not understand? All sin can be and will be cleansed from those who, according to verse 7, are walking in the light. So what does that mean, walking in the light? This is the second thing we need to notice here. I think it's very clear from these verses that walking in the light does not mean living without sin. And that walking in the darkness doesn't just mean being a really bad sinner. It's not a matter of degree. No, walking in darkness means living in bondage to your sin because you refuse to own up to it, which makes God out to be a liar and it treats the cross as an unnecessary waste of Christ's blood. Walking in darkness means hiding your sin. It means harboring your sin. It means saying to God and everyone else, it's no big deal, I've got this, I'm not sinful, I'm not broken, I'm fine. Go talk to somebody else about their need for forgiveness because I'm good. That's walking in darkness. So what's walking in the light? It's not living a sinless life. It's living a repentant life. Yes, yes, yes. It's a life where you're, you're both aware of your sinfulness and God's willingness to forgive it in Jesus. It's a life where you realize that you don't deserve to be forgiven, but you are anyway. It's a life of someone who's responded to God's call, a call that some of you might need to respond to this morning, a call to own up to your own sin, Admit your need for Jesus to save you and come into the light, believing that the God who is both light and love will forgive you on the basis of Jesus Christ's unthinkable sacrifice on your behalf. Amen. And then, 
thirdly, I just want you to notice a word we often fly by in that famous verse, verse 9, that many of you have memorized about confessing your sins. It says that when we own up to our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. That's interesting. Do you realize what that means? It means that when we own up to our sins and bring them before God, He's not just cutting us slack. He's not just going easy on us. He's not just giving us a little extra mercy. Now, when Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the Father's wrath at sin, that doesn't mean that God now has the option to forgive us. You know what it means? It means that God now has the obligation to forgive us. Why? Because God, being light, is perfectly just, and it would not be just to require two payments for the same sin. Now, that's an amazing thing to consider. God, when he sent his son to us, was merciful and gracious. And he is merciful and gracious. But you know what? Now that the price is paid, when God forgives us, he's just being just. He's just being fair. He's just doing what's right, because that's what he does. Now, you can look at the gospel of Jesus from all sorts of different angles, and we'll be doing it over the next few messages. But this week... I would say that this week we're looking at the cross head-on. We're looking at, 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 at what J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, calls the heart of the gospel. The atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners to absorb the punishment that we rightly deserve. But the God of light, who cannot look upon sin, is also the God of love, who willingly absorbed all of our sin and darkness into himself so that we could be forgiven. So let me give you a short version of that, okay? The 25 minutes that you just spent listening to me, let me give you the one-minute version that I gave to this man so that he could share it with his dying friend in the hospital. Something like this. Who is God? What is he like? Well, the Bible says that God is light. He is absolutely perfect, pure, and holy in every way, which is a good thing, but it's bad news for us because we are full of sin and darkness, and so we can't be with God. But the Bible also says God is love, and he showed us that love by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins to take away all of our darkness, and to receive that gift, all you need to do is own up to your darkness and answer God's invitation to step into the light of his love and forgiveness. About a week after sharing this simple gospel presentation with this man, I found myself performing the funeral for his friend, who just days before he died, stepped into the light and put his trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. What about you? What about you? You're walking in the light. Let's pray. Let's pray.